Hello, welcome to the Unwalkable Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Owsley, and we have a great show for you today. Dr. Eric Smith is joining us, who is a professor of composition and rhetoric at York College, is going to share with us all of the tactics we need, well, not all, but a broad overview of the tactics we need to help combat the communication manipulation in academia and our institutions today. He is a wealth of knowledge. He is one of the smartest men I know and have met. Uh, he is a warrior on the front lines of what we are battling today, which is the cultural Marxist takeover of our country. He is the author of A Criticism of Anti-Racism and Rhetoric and Composition. You need to buy this book, use it as a tool. And he is the one of the co-founders and editors of Free Black Thought, which you absolutely need to subscribe to, subscribe to on Substack. I, all of the information coming out of there and out of Dr. Smith is invaluable to what we are doing. If you like my content, if you enjoy what I'm putting out, please like and subscribe to the channel so I can continue doing it and bringing it to you. A lot of great conversations coming up, and we need your support to keep them coming. So thank you so much, and enjoy this episode of the Unwokable Podcast with Dr. Eric. However, when one of your tenets is to never listen to the other side, <laughs> then you know what, what's rhetoric going to do? And the fact that that's a... Uh, common sentiment among rhetoric professors who are doing anti-racism uh, is beyond ironic, right? I yeah. mean, it, it's it's, uh, it's it's purposeful, really. You know, yeah. uh, it, it's let's uh, let's do something that erases the field that we're in. <laughs> yeah, right now well, for the cause. That's how important the cause is. Well, and I can identify with that specifically because um, I think one of the only disciplines more so or on par with composition, rhetoric, and language, English, that have been hijacked um, by anti-racism and DEI has been music education. Um, it was very fast. And it is, for lack of a better term, a suicidal endeavor, you know, because the whole system or the whole critique is what it is that we study is the evil. It's a suicidal endeavor. They right. and and I and the 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 conversations I've tried to have with my elder professors and people on my committee and things like that always devolves into well, that's not really what this is. That's not really what this is. And as as James Lindsay often says, sometimes you know, very smart people are the easily most easily fooled. I want to dive in because uh, I want to dive in here to your definition of anti-racism. Because, well, not your the definition or your definition. And, you know, Kendi seems to define it in terms explicitly in public policy, and then, and I kind of want to get into that in a little bit, but. I just want to know your definition of anti-racism and how that intersects with what it is that you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, my definition of anti-racism, you know, my the one that I like and okay. the one that yeah. I was raised on and things mm -hmm. like that is is basically an offshoot of classical liberalism. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody uh you treat everybody as an equal. Uh you base uh your uh treatment of them on their character and 
and things like that. And you don't, you don't define people by race or any other kind of group affiliation necessarily, right? Uh, that's the, uh, you know, the, the civil rights movement mode mm -hmm. of anti-racism. Um, right now, we have anti-racism based in what I like to call, well, what other people like to call as well, but as opposed to CRT, I like to call it CSJ, critical social justice. Um, and I do that because a lot of uh, CRT isn't bad, but when you get to CSJ, it is, right? For example, uh, intersectionality, not a bad idea, okay? So nobody's one thing. Right, I'm black, but I'm male, middle class, uh, straight, yada yada yada. All these things that are privileged, quote unquote, um, in society. So, you know, I, I'm not, you know, to call me especially oppressed is not a, uh, you know, as accurate as uh, people may think it is because of those intersections, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and you know, the idea that it came out of the, you know, black feminism. You know, it's, it's one thing to be white and feminist, but black and feminist is a different thing because you're black and feminist, right? That's just, that, that makes sense to me, right? Mm -hmm. With critical social justice is spun into um, a marker of ethos. Like who's allowed to talk and who isn't? Who mm -hmm. has the credentials and who doesn't, you know, based on their intersections? That is not what the uh, term was coined for, right? Uh, so... That's why I like to use critical social justice, because even the good aspects of CRT are turned into um, something for the express purpose of social justice, which is the acquisition of power. Right. That, yeah. Well, and, and this gets into what I had uh, brought up talking with you about was, you know, when we use CRT, and, and I think that that has been an effective tool in getting the message out that this isn't what everyone may think it is, you know, it's yeah. not a continuation of the civil rights movement as we all grew up yeah. knowing it, but it gets into the, the idea of intersectionality, right? It's like you said, there are some merits to it, but mm -hmm. taking it and putting it in explicitly and only in terms of identity, right? Th it's this inversion of intent. I believe, and and I and I want to explore the concept with you of the idea of rhetorical intent. It gets it gets tough. Intention is, uh, you know, uh, difficult. You know, they say the road to hell is uh, lined with the best of intentions, right? Well, uh, yeah. the 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 road to uh, bad rhetoric or being unconvinced is also lined with the uh, best of intentions. So there's that. Uh, ultimately, however, and you mentioned Kairos earlier. You know, understanding not just the discourse, but the dynamics of time, place, um, you know, who you are, how you feel, right? The uh, occasion, right? Is it a specific kind of day? Is it just a random day? All those things have to be taken into consideration if you want to be as persuasive as possible. Another term for that is peristasis, you know, so you're, you're, you're around a moment around the situation. So you're looking at every aspect of the situation, um, the time, the place, the room. Some people will go as far as to say that the, the furniture, the way the furniture is organized in the room, mm -hmm. you know, um, that can have something that, you know, uh, who's there. Um, if somebody who you know disagrees with you and uh, has uh, similar credentials and may actually speak after you is there, you're going to use different terms, different references that you would otherwise. All these things come into play. Right, which is why uh, in 
in uh, some of my publications, I say that Kairos isn't something we use. Kairos is something we are, right? Okay. Uh, because uh, who we are will be influenced by the dynamics of the room, who's in there, you know, what time of day it is, uh, how I'm feeling, you know, all kinds of different things. Uh, so, so when it comes to intent, the best you can do is be as chirotic um, or peristatic as possible. Okay. In your book, you talk about, I think it was Michael Leff, his definition yes. of Kairos um, yes. in terms of civic humanistic rhetoric. Right. Okay. I want to relate that to history for a second, because as we've seen, you know, there's a, the, the whole critical social justice movement has sought to recontextualize history with a certain intent. Right. And right. so I, I, I'm getting into this in my work because it's especially true in music. Um, and art in general, you know, whether you're talking about sculpture or statues or anything like that. Um, is there, is based upon the way you just first, based upon the way you just described Kairos, is that in line with the way that Michael Left describes it? Or is that, is there a distinction there? Um, that is atemporal, uh, okay. which means it's, it's, it's out of time really. And you're thinking about certain situations as transcending time, which is the okay. opposite of Kairos. Right. Okay. And, and it's one of the uh, complaints I have um, about about, uh, you know, contemporary anti-racism in the field of rhetoric. Yeah. Right. They're there. Kairos is a, you know, dead term uh, to them and it should be the primary term. I see. Um, I, um, I had uh, a colleague of mine who I, I like and, and respect, not somebody I work with, somebody in the field. Uh, I said I talked about Kairos and, uh, you know, engaging one's audience before speaking or writing. And uh, that person said, audiences aren't static, right? Audiences change. Mm -hmm. And that's true, but the change is relatively glacial, right? I'm not, you know, if I'm writing a letter to my senator, I'm not going to be like, oh, well, during the reading of this letter, he may turn into a circus clown. So I can't, I can't very well gauge the audience because he may turn into a starfish or something in the middle <laughs> of it. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, you right. can gauge an audience sufficiently, even though that audience is potentially, um, you know, uh, mutable, right? Potentially, mm -hmm. uh, it can change. Um, so that that is a, you know, again, I really like this colleague, but an egregious uh, misinterpretation of uh, temporality uh, when it comes to speaking and trying to be as um, persuasive as possible. Now, regarding uh, history, right, and how they revise history and things like that. Um, that is, you know, a tried and true aspect of Marxist thought, especially when mm -hmm. it comes to cultural uh, Marxism. Um, you know, Marx talked about it. Lenin, in, in a 1920 speech to the communist youth of Russia, right, he basically says, you know, the, the, the point of education is to uh, reinforce communism and perpetuate communism, period. That's the alpha and the omega. The point of education is that. So you're not doing math. You're doing math insofar as it perpetuates right. communism and things like that. You're not doing history. You're doing history insofar as it perpetuates uh, communism and supports and buttresses communism. That same thing is happening with uh, uh, DEI and anti-racism. Uh, math turns into you know um, 
equitable math or ethno-mathematics, right? It's about the oppressor and oppressed, which has nothing to do with two plus two equals four, right? right? Um, history, you know, you're only um, focusing on the aspects of history that pertain to uh, race and anti-racism and things like that, and you're spinning things so that they seem to pertain to uh, race and, and, and anti-racism, and, and obviously some do, but others, uh, you know, don't, which is why we have, uh, actually, there is, a, there is an author, uh, I forget her first name, uh, let's call her Professor Sullivan, that's her last name, who insists that, and she's, she explicitly says she's not being metaphorical, it's still 1492, right? It's still 1619, it's still 1921. Um, noticing, notice the fact that only the bad things that happen are still happening, right? right? Not, not, yes. not the good stuff, you know, not 1968 or, you know, Brown versus Board of Education. People have different attitudes about that, but right. you, you get my point. Yes. You know, that is, that is a temporality on steroids, right? You're not really looking at the specific situation here. You're literally applying something that happened 500 years ago, you know, to, uh, you know, May 30th, 2022, Right. And uh, right. And it doesn't you know, that doesn't make sense, but it makes sense if you're, you know, um, DEI, social justice oriented. Right. And you're trying to uh, get these things across. So SEL, same thing. Mm-hmm. Social emotional learning has been spun into something that perpetuates, uh, you know, social justice uh, ideologies that they have. and They're trying to push it and, and things like that. So everything is usurped by a particular cause. Right. For Lenin, it was, you know, uh, class based communism, but to a large extent, cultural as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's going on now. You know, uh, this is basically cultural Marxism or, as Lindsay says, race Marxism. Right. Well, and uh, I think it, it's also akin to what happened in Mao's cultural revolution. I mean, I think it's even more translatable at, at points because he explicitly goes after them after a certain point and And. And after the education of the four old is what he called them, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I want I want to hit on on the how that's being weaponized in the general public and the rhetoric that we see. So I I I talk about what I call, and I'm sure this has another definition that's much older, but a preemptive narrative and Jim Crow 2.0, for example. And I think that hits on what you were talking about as being, you know. It's 1492 today. Well, yeah. how how do you see that being weaponized, especially if you if I will, the intersection with mass communication? How do you see rhetoric being manipulated in the public spaces, whether it's politically? Because I often see it as this. I see it as almost when I use the word preemptive, I mean the term preemptive strike. They want to kind of shield themselves from you know, the discrimination that's inherent in anti-racism, because you can't create equity without discriminating against groups of people as defined, how are they, how are they defined them? Mm-hmm. So how, how are you seeing this? How are you seeing rhetoric weaponized in the public spaces um, to influence large groups of people to say, vote a certain way? Um, is that, is that, is that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you you play on their sensibilities, right? Uh, you you play on the fact that you know racism has been so demonized that to be called one 
is the worst thing in the world, right? So you play on that a little bit and you make everything um, uh, racist, which is the preemptive aspect of it. Nothing says preemptive strike more than the uh, critical social justice tenet of the question isn't whether racism happened, it's how did it manifest in this situation? Right. Right. Which is, which is not the critical and critical social justice and critical race theory isn't the same critical as critical thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, critical thinking, you're you're looking around, you're analyzing things, you're trying to figure out what isn't as uh, apparent as other things, things that may be hidden and stuff like that. And you're looking to see if there's a problem. The critical and critical social justice is, oh, there's a problem. I just got to figure out what it is. And if I can't find it, I got to spin something right to, into being the problem. So, you know, that's that's not critical thinking at all. Right. That's, a, a, you know, projecting um, what you want, your social reality onto uh, actual reality. Um, so so the uh, the tenet of, you know, there's it's not that racism, you know, happened or not. It definitely did. We just have to find it. That is the you know, that's that's preemptive strike on steroids. Yeah. Right. And, and once you can do that and instill that into people, uh, especially institutions, it's going to spill out into society and politics and things like that. Um, so we have to be, you know, at more energetic than they are, which uh, often seems impossible, but it has to happen. Well, let, let's take this to the base. You've got the three words, diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. right? And those appear good in, in just the, the natural form, right. the way that you would view them, but their operational aspects. So I guess I'm trying to decipher how we, or, or explain to the audience how we decipher the rhetoric of those three words or, or that those three kind of concepts from the operational mode it, and you know, how, we, how we can do that quickly enough in a moment where we may be, you know, we, we've both been in trainings at, at the collegiate level, I'm sure, you know, where it's, you get hit with these kinds of things. And the first time you're hit with them, it's, it's kind of shocking. And often it takes some time to, in your brain, decipher what's happening. And then you can go back. And usually by then you've lost some ground or at least lost your voice, especially if you're not a person of color, as they would say. So how can we quickly or what, what advice would you give to quickly identify what those words are and versus how they're perceived to how they operate? Um, I'm going to say something that uh, reiterates, you know, Aristotle, Francis Bacon, John Locke, uh, Kenneth Burke, so many other uh, people. Ask what the definition is. You know, what, what, how are they defining these terms? That's the first question you should have. How are they defining these terms? Because, you know, they're, they're redefining or re-signifying these terms and not telling anybody because that, that's another tactic derived from, uh, from Marxism. You, you, uh, I call it dizzying tactics, right? Um, you, and, and the efficacy of this was illustrated. Do you ever watch the show Barry on HBO? Oh, yes, yeah, mm -hmm. So uh, a couple of episodes ago, uh, he was like, I, I want to just scare her, right? So, uh, uh -huh. so uh, she, he wants to scare somebody into doing what 
you know, he wants her to do. So he says, you know, you, you do little things like replace your dog with a similar looking dog. Yes. Right. I uh, replace the furniture with slightly bigger furniture. So she thinks she's shrinking. Right. Yes. Just because yes. the more dizzy she is, the easier she is to knock down. Yeah. Right. So the more dizzy society is, the easier they are to topple. And that's the whole point is to topple the certain, uh, the uh, current system of things. Um, so, so how do you do that? You take a word that is common and everybody knows the definition, change the definition and you don't tell anybody, right? So yes. that when they <laughs> abide by the original definition, they're bad people and you point them out as racist, right? And, and, and that's, that's dizzying. That's a dizzying mm -hmm. effect. If they didn't want to dizzy you, they'd appreciate and have a healthy respect for the concept of an adjective, right? There's <laughs> racism. Okay, so... Okay, racism can only come from white people. Okay, so it's hegemonic racism. I don't know. It's 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 mainstream racism. It's you know, or, or it's traditional racism. I don't know. Uh, have an adjective there. Yeah. You no. Know? If you don't want to confuse your audience, the fact that you don't and just change the definition, you're trying to confuse the audience. You're trying to dizzy them because yeah. dizzy people are easier to knock down. Right. Well, they do the same thing with diversity, equity, inclusion, all kinds of different terms. Yes. I, first of all, I, I watched that episode of Barry. And when he said that, I was like, oh, my goodness, that's what it is, yeah. because it is. And I see this in teacher trainings because I've been going through DEI teacher trainings, even here in Red State, Oklahoma. That's where I'm at, mm -hmm. um, where they obviously do the whole diversity, equity, inclusion, just like you explained. But they also do it with their visuals. So if you're going through slides, they they put up slides that appear to be linear, but they're not, you know, and, and they're out of order, but they look in order. And yeah. I think that weaponizes or that it weaponizes the empathy of teachers, especially. Yeah. Right. I was getting to that. Yeah. Yes. Well, and because I think that teachers, first of all, they make their living off their mind and what they know and how smart they mm -hmm. are. And if they feel like they don't know something they will kind of cower in and go, well, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to appear stupid. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and it has in, in that vein, do you think, Oh, I'm going to go back to what you said about adjectives. So anti-racism if you think of terms of science, anti and antimatter and matter, it's the same thing just going both ways. Mm -hmm. So the, do you think that these words like that are reclaimable rhetorically? Because the way I look at the word anti-racism now is racism not reversed, but just racism going the other direction. And, yeah. you know, and so diversity, equity, inclusion, they seem to be landmines. And I've seen a subset of the unwoke crowd that I think I've I worked with FAIR that I think is a great organization. I've worked with uh, many people that think that we can reclaim those words and terms. Do you think that's viable now rhetorically to do that? Or do we have to kind of move in a different direction and then try to reclaim them later? Um, that's a good question. You know, um, and if the well has been poisoned, so to speak, already, then uh, maybe we need to get to another well, you know, and, and uh, you know, use different terms and, you know, uh, let people know, like, 
I don't know, uh, preface whatever we say with the idea that these terms have been usurped, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the first place, and then move on to other things like explain yourself, right? Uh, you know, the uh, we talked about kairos earlier and peristasis. Um, there are similar terms, but the distinction is that with peristasis, you're you're voicing the kairos. You're, you're you're talking about the room and the day and the time, right? You're making that explicit. I think uh, we need to be peristatic uh, when it comes to these things. We have to describe what's going on um, in very vivid ways, and then move into what um, should be happening, you know, when it comes to uh, race in America. That makes so much sense because I, I just have a, I have a, and I think this whole ideology is designed to keep us off balance, just like right. we had said before. It's right. designed to make everything appear larger, just the, the Barry example is yeah. perfect. But I, I'm searching for, because I, I deal a lot with parents who don't have time to sit and read. Right. I deal a lot right. with with even administrators who know something is off, but do not have the vocabulary or the rhetoric to combat yeah. that. What would be your advice to them in, in that in those kind of situations? What? Yeah. Well, my my advice would actually go to the people trying to talk to them. You know, again, we're, we're gauging audience. Uh, so, so figure out how to say what you need to say in a five minute YouTube video, you know, uh, figure out, create a, a meme or an infographic that is clear as day. And if they want and have time to look into it deeper, uh, have a link there, you know, or, or, or uh, shamelessly plug yourself and say, read my book you yeah. know, or, 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 or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But we have to, we have to gauge, we have to know who we're talking to before we start talking. Yeah. You know, so in, in a sense, the onus is on us um, to do something. Um, and I wouldn't, like, you're right, people are, are busy. Uh, they don't have the knowledge and, and rhetoric and things like that. And they're abiding by the traditional definitions and not right. the new ones that they're not being told about. Right. So that's getting them caught up is a tall order. You just gotta, you gotta realize they're not caught up and speak or write accordingly. So the onus is on us for that. That makes so much sense. And, and I think all of us are trying to do that to a large extent. And I, I think rhetoric specifically, composition, writing is something that's overlooked by a lot of us, um, you know, because it's easy to just hop on the, the, the most obvious forms of this. And I think because we, lots of us, my age, I'm 37. So I did not have any training in there, I, I took communication classes, how to write. And so I want to go into the composition aspect of this because um, recently, and I think you've talked about this a lot, is kind of the attack on language as being racist, right? right? And it's the exact same thing in, in music. So they're talking about the actual music theory, the words, or so for lack of a better connection, the words are the notes of the structures of the chords even, or how you write them down is the racist part. How do we, <laughs> how do we combat that? Because it, it, I, I've, I've come up with some ways that I think are good, just relating it to science, for example. All music theory is, or music composition is, is you hear a sound and the writing it down on a staff paper is just a translation of what you hear, uh -huh. right? 
I don't think it's as simple in language composition when you're writing. So, and so my question is, is how, how do we, first of all, combat the idea that classical language and a common language isn't racist or is racist? Mm -hmm. And how do we reinforce that that's part of what we need in order to communicate with each other? Um, well, we, we talk about how, you know, language has developed in the first place. And let's talk about why, why Black English has developed in the first place. Given the circumstances uh, of the uh, slaves back in, in the day, in, dealing with, uh, you know, not just the Southern aristocracy, quote unquote, uh, but the Scottish and Irish who came over um, and they were dealing with as indentured servants as the other poor people uh, in the area. And they have certain aspects that you can hear in Black English, right? Um, you, you can go to Wales and instead of ask, they say ax. You know, you can go to Wales and get that. Oh, you know, right. you, you wow, know? yeah, okay. you know, so, 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 uh, so that's an issue, just talking about how uh, the language came up in the first place and it came up pragmatically, right? Which is to say, okay, my, my purpose here is to make sure this other person knows what I'm trying to say. How do I do that? All right, I speak this way. So it's, it's all pragmatic, right? It's not uh, the anti-racists in my field are trying to se sell it as a dignity thing. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, yeah. Oh, you have to speak in the standard English for this person to understand you? Uh, have some dignity and speak in you know, the way you want to speak. Well, if you want to be persuasive and you can get your dignity someplace else, mm -hmm. then speak the way that you know your audience is going to... Uh, identify with the best and understand the best because the point is to persuade. The point is to share information, right? Um, so there will be a time and place for uh, Black English and a time and place for, uh, you know, a standard English. And people in my field will say, oh, that time and place means that there's a good place for standard English and a bad place for uh, Black English. Um, and they know they're full of shit. But, but <laughs> But they also know there are people there who are going to abide by it because of peer pressure or because they're not smart or whatever. Yeah. Right. Well, um, so, yeah. Well, it seems to me that the best communicators I, I've studied and read so much of Martin Luther King, but in his speeches, I mean, we're talking about a master communicator yeah. when you're when you're a preacher and he would change if he was sitting down on a network television show that he knew was, I guess, for all intents and purposes, primarily white. Yeah, he would. He had the tools, more so than say I would, or say John Kennedy would, or to actually reach out to an audience for whom his he didn't have the immutable qualities of. You know, it, mm -hmm. because he studied, he he grew up in a dialect or in a way of speaking, in a way of communicating, and then studied a different one. It, mm -hmm. Do you think that it's necessary for us? And I I find this. Going back to my my field, which is music theory, music education, classical music, the argument is made, well, the reason why there aren't more people of color in classical music is because it's racist. Could it be also that it's because they weren't exposed to it over the course of their lives during the young ages or when they got older or in their education? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, yeah. You know, it, it, I... But they seem to avoid that at all cost, any, any, that is racist to say that, because then you're implying, I guess, that 
people of color aren't smart enough. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's that's a difficult thing to navigate, especially if you're being smacked with it. You know. Well, the I'm glad you said smacked with it because yeah. that's the point. Mm-hmm. You know, the again dizzying. You know, the Barry effect. You know, yeah. that, they know they're not making any sense. They know. You know, they're putting it out here anyway because they have to demonize everything considered mainstream in society. They have to demonize everything. Education has to be about, you know, uh, race, you know, or other, uh, you know, uh, marginalized groups, but ultimately race uh, right now and, and, and gender and trans, mm-hmm. uh, as we're seeing. Um, everything has to be about that, you know? So listen, they're, they're trained rhetoricians, but people in my field, they know what they're saying makes no sense. Yeah. They, they know that. You so know, you they, think it is intentional? Oh, but, yes. Okay. Capital right. Y, capital E, capital S, exclamation point. Yes. Now, there are some people who are just like followers, right? They're abiding mm-hmm. by it, right? And mm-hmm. some people have been effectively, you know, indoctrinated into this cult, you know, it, with, with sacred text and, and patron saints and things like that. I mean, all that's there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but the leaders here, the people who are doing it, they know, they know what they're talking about. And it's not hard to figure out that they know, right? Yeah. Um, I, um, I just uh, wrote a piece about one of the leaders in the field and uh, his uh, fondness for cultural Marxism and how he talks about the need for cultural Marxism to be part of the uh, writing pedagogy. I mean, it's right there. He's not trying to hide it. Right. You know, um, and, and other people, and you may not say that explicitly, but they use certain terms or certain uh, terms of phrase or things like that um, to uh, that that sound like cultural Marxism. You know, uh, even Kendi, you know, that 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 article I talked about, that speech, rather, I talked about from Lenin in 1920. If you replace communism with anti-racism, it's Kendi. Mm-hmm. It's Kendi. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know? It, that's, yeah. that's what it is. It, it's like he read that and said, oh, I'll just replace these words, you know? Yeah. So, so yes, yes, it's, it's, it's intentional. It all comes from a cultural Marxist strategy, right? And it's something that isn't going away unless we make it go away. So if good faith communication is, is necessary for discourse, yeah. and you know that there are people who are purposely trying to manipulate you, how do you maintain a society of good faith discourse? <laughs> it seems like a paradox. Well, you, you got to let people know what's happening, uh, for one thing, right? And you got to let people know the origins of this and that, you know, the people, I mean, I'm blanking on exactly who said this, but you know, never trust the hegemony. There's no such thing as a good faith uh, person representing the hegemonic forces. There's, there's no, there's no such thing. They're always trying to trick you, right? Always, always, always. Yeah. They're never not trying to trick you. Um, and if they're not trying to trick you, they've been duped. They're the useful mm-hmm. idiots, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's their attitude. So what you have to do, you can't talk to them anymore. In fact, when they say ridiculous stuff, and I wrote an article about this, when they say ridiculous stuff, call it out, ridicule mm-hmm. it, because your real audience now, you know, consists of the people listening. Yeah. Right? The eavesdroppers. I, I'm done trying to convince them. You know, I know what they're up to. I, I'm, I've been done for a while. I'm trying to convince the people listening who aren't quite sure what's going on yet, 
right? Or, or, or feel like this doesn't make sense, but I must be missing something. You know, mm -hmm. you're not missing something. You know, it mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. I'm going to point it out for you right now. You know, so when it comes to the people who don't want to listen to us or don't want to talk to us, fine. All right. We're going to, there's still a catalyst for our monologues, right? right. So, so, right. so, you know, so they will be our excuse for saying what we need to say, you know, like the truth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, or an accurate interpretation of reality. Yeah. Right? And, and let people know that there are people out there who aren't buying it. And that when they sound, when the anti-racists among us sound ridiculous, it's because they're being ridiculous. Yeah, and I, I really like that, what you said there, that our, one, I think this is why they don't debate. This is why Kendi won't go on with Coleman Hughes, that it yeah. won't go on with anybody that can actually debate him, right. because that would lend his audience to their views, right? Right. And I think, and I, I love that, what you said there, that our audience even when we talk to them, it's not them, it's those around us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge, just simplistic way of saying, okay, grab their audience. And that takes a certain amount of rhetoric and knowledge and the ability to communicate well mm -hmm. within the paresthesis as you, were as you were talking about. I want to talk about that for a second in terms of the, the, the gender issue, because like you said with your example, that when you write a letter to a senator, he's not going to change into a starfish or, or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. It appears to me that the non-binary issue specifically, because when you have uh, they, them, all, all these changing pronouns, that it's an effort to actually create that problem that you were describing, that as you're speaking to them, they can at that moment decide they are a they or a he or a him or a she, literally, and then hit you with that and end your discussion. How, how, because then the, the roles are reversed. So if you're the one speaking, you're the one that has charge of the room, right? But if they hit you with this, you know, offense at that moment, then you become the oppressor or the aggressor. How do you combat that as the rhetoric, as the narrator, as the person who's giving the information, if that's what they hit you with? Have you been in that situation before? And how do you combat it? Um, I've been in that situation before, uh, but like uh, in email threads. Okay. You know, um, and, you know, I, I will say, oh, sorry about that. So anyway, you know, that's, that's kind of uh, how I deal with it. But I mean, you can, you can also turn things around on them. Right. Uh, for for example, I was uh, I'm also writing this this uh, article right now uh, on tone policing, right? And how when people are said, just calm down and let's have a conversation. That's tone policing, and it's a it's a form of silencing. Mm -hmm. You know, I once had somebody say that, uh, you know, um, asking for somebody to elaborate on a point she just made was an attempt to silence her. You know, yeah, right. They know they make no sense. Um, but anyway, the tone policing is the point, though, right? I mean, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> tone policing, uh, if you do that to me, if you tell me to calm down, then you're trying to silence me. But, you know, what about this idea that words are violence? Yeah. You know, that they, they embrace. If that's true, and somebody's saying your words are violent to me, and you accuse them of being oppressive, then, you know, you're contradicting yourself, mm -hmm. right? Um, so you can point those things out as well and say, oh, well, oh, I did that to you. Well, I can say you're doing that to me. 
two people can play this game, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so that's uh, one of the things. Well, that's what I'm doing in this article anyway. Right. Um, whether it's going to be, um, you know, an effective way of dealing with them in a particular situation depends on the situation. And we're back to Kairos, right? Yeah. So Kairos is, is everything. Yeah. I, context is king is another way to yes. say that. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's, that's where, I, where my work is focusing because in the specific piece that I'm writing about my dissertation and all of that, it is, it is, they, they are calling for the, basically the tearing down of the Jefferson Memorial. And this piece was written and dedicated the same day. Jefferson, it's the same words that are on the memorial. And the argument was, uh, that, or has been made that because Jefferson had slaves, therefore we must tear down the memorial in Washington, D.C. And I'm just going to use that as an example. It's more yeah. accessible. And, but foregoing the context of the fact that the memorial was raised in 1943, you know, as an explicit undertone of saying Jefferson and, and FDR even says this in his speech um, when, when he's dedicating, he said, we're not, we are not honoring Jefferson the man, but we're honoring Jefferson's ideas that are in the foxholes with you right now to end yeah. Nazism. And I think that that is something that I, I try to highlight a lot that I found effective is that, hey, we have to take the context. We have to fill in from 1492. We have to fill in some of these holes. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if we can't do that, then we've lost. You know, we've lost all semblance of our history and all semblance of our ability to communicate through the best of rhetoric, you know, because uh, if you're talking about logos, you're talking, and please correct me if I'm using any of these terms wrong, um, uh -huh. but but logos is the logic, right? I mean, it, it, you have, th this comes from contextual objective history and let, let, let me get you from a professor standpoint to address those like me who may be dealing with a, a committee, a teacher, a professor who is trying to avoid that, but has almost complete control over you at that point. You know, as you know, when you're in my situation, your committee is like, they can yay or nay you at any point. And if uh -huh. they nay you too much, you're done, right? Yeah. How can you effectively, <laughs> other uh, how can you effectively combat that in, in from my position or from position of graduate students or college students to someone maybe in your position who has more control over them that does not want you to go down the road, the road of context, the road of logos? Um, is there any way to do that or are you just or is your goose just cooked? <laughs> um, there are a couple of ways. Um, the first is to point out that, you know, often what they're doing is called a genetic fallacy. You know, you're, you're dismissing an idea because of the person who said it 200 years ago. The idea may still be a good one right now, right. but oh, you don't like the person who said it, so it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's called a, a genetic fallacy um, and, or, or guilt by association is, is something that can often be a part of that uh, as well, ideological guilt by association. Um, but also, again, you can turn things around and say, you kind of do the same thing. For the people who are, it's explicit about their fondness of cultural Marxism as it pertains to pedagogy or uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the people who are explicit about that. Marx was an egregious racist. Yeah. Egregious. 
um, against black people, against anti-Semite. I mean, I mean, he was an anti-Semitic, I mean, so against Jews. Um, there, I mean, you can look at the German, the original German, and he uses the N-word. He doesn't use the German word for black person. You know, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> right? It, it's all German in I-G-G-E-R. You know, right, and then, right. I mean, okay, so, uh, hey, your guy was racist. So right. why are you following him? You know, so just point out that hypocrisy. That's one way of doing it. Yeah. Um, were you, did you want to say something? Well, no, I just, I, but you, you, that is absolutely correct. But they don't seem to care about the hypocrisy of it. That is another part. Yeah, go ahead. Which is why you're talking to other people and not them. Yeah, yeah. Right? Remember, yes. you're not talking mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. You know, because they, they know they're not making sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I feel like I say this every podcast, but, you know, you need reason and rationality and common sense to build things, mm -hmm. to tear things down. You don't need any of it. You yeah. don't need any of that. In fact, the yeah. opposite can help you. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's that's what's going on with them. They 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 know they're making no sense. Yeah. They're, they're but, the, but, it, you. but specifically in the situation where this person has power over you, you know, and, and it's not necessarily you're doing it for an audience. Okay. Right. And that, that that's that's kind of the distinction and makes it more difficult. And uh, it I think it's pushing. More classical liberal people out of the academy. Um, yeah. And I think that's the goal of DEI. It's not about really race, color, or gender. It's about, okay, it's the reason Larry Elder can be the black face of white supremacy, yeah. right? Or it, it's it's really about your viewpoint. And they do that by weaponizing the power centers through their professors to knock people who don't agree out. And they'll do that in various different ways. Um, I, th I believe they tried to do that to you. And in your yeah. own community, and so how have you dealt with that? If you know, you've had lots of bombs thrown at you. I've seen, and and how have you dealt with that? Uh, I take the Monty Python approach uh, to this. <laughs> um, when they try to they attack me and they try to like really cut me, I'm like, oh, merely a flesh wound, you know. Uh, that's how I go about this. I, you you got to let them know that you're not going anywhere. Yeah, you're not confusing them. I mean, they're not confusing you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to topple you. And mm -hmm. more professors with tenure who know this is bad need to speak up. Yes. A lot of what's going on is, I'm going to say it, cowardice. Yes. You know, I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're a graduate student or a contingent faculty or something like that, uh, if you have a kind of precarious uh, position in the field. If you're a full professor, you know, and you're going to retire in five years, say something yeah you know just say something you're the people who they can't push out yep. you know so a lot of this is just cowardice you know a lot of people are saying to themselves i nothing will happen to me you know professionally if i say something um but my colleagues will not like me and i don't want to deal with that deal yeah. with it yeah deal with it you don't i mean maybe i'm just maybe there's something wrong with me but uh, i don't care like i don't well, care Parisian. I'd rather I'd rather tell the truth and have a thousand people hate me than lie and have them love me. Right. Well, you know, and I, I, I think I think what I see in professors now, especially in my field, because my field is all visual. Uh, the assessments are visual. They are are oral. You know, it's yeah. when when you put together a group. Our my entire field is you take them to places, people listen to them, and they go, "Oh, you're a good director because you have good groups," you know, and 
that has been so weaponized in, in, in the performance arts because now you have to dedicate your program to the ideology. And then I've, I actually have a dissertation I'm dissecting right now uh, for mine that they lay this out on how to implant this into every group that you go into. And oh, really? also, yes. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. It's out of out of San Francisco, and um, I'll, I'd be happy to share it with you and talk to you. Yeah, about it. yeah, I want I want to see that it, because they they lay it out as a structure. They have things that are called you know, um, phantom uh, phantom lesson planning and what you're actually going to implant and not show. You right. know, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, very yeah, explicit. Yeah, yeah. They yeah, they yeah. they have no. That so, is the praxis of CRT, right? And yes. not the not the content. That's how yes. it happens. That's good. That's a dissertation. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. See, that person's brave. Yeah. You know, because there's a there's somebody with tenure and had had tenure for ten years, right? Yeah, Who but is it, not that brave. Well, well, yes, but here's the thing. No, this is coming from the actual people doing it. This is the, the it, my dissertation is going to lay out is trying to lay okay, out some of those things. No, this is coming from the the pro. Yeah, uh, CSJ movement saying this is how we're doing this, it. This is how okay. This is yeah. this is a how to. Yes. Yeah. And okay. and so that that I'm I'm dissecting it now for my dissertation to say hey. Okay. Here's here's where we're at. I'm and if we don't, it will kill our industry. It will kill our our subject. It will kill our academic pursuit that has been going since literally the the dawn of the human voice in many ways. You know, I uh-huh. mean, because I'm a choir director and so. Choir music has this rare component of you get the actual rhetoric or the actual text, and then you get the 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 pathos of the music itself, right? And mm-hmm. and the feelings behind it, and the logos of the structure, you know, and all of that's combined and it's thrown. And so I believe that social justice has really ta- gone after choral music specifically because most it's cheap in schools, it's in all of them, and it in Try to say the ABCs without singing them. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, it's, 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 and so I think it's uh, that's why I'm very much interested in the rhetoric aspect because I think it's this amalgamation of what you study in in a way that is almost un, unmatched in terms of gathering an audience and conveying a message. Right. And so I, I really, <laughs> it's it's difficult to to put down into you know just a a few words and i think that your advice on telling us that hey keep it simple pique people's interest and point them in Mm -hmm. the right direction and then you know is is such valuable advice um i want you to talk for a minute uh now that we're getting close to the end of our time about free black thought um because that First of all, I've been a fan of it since the very beginning. I read everything you guys do, everything you put out. And I think every time I read it, it hits me, you know, because oh. it, first of all, you don't see a lot of um, people of color, African-Americans, Black people, uh, or any of that willing to, I think, come out of the box because you all seem to be the most attacked when it oh. happens. And so I just want to talk, I wanted you to talk a minute about your goals there what what some things you might have in the future and, and and what you're doing with free black thought well free black thought is about you know uh showcasing right the d- viewpoint diversity within you know the black community i hate saying black community yeah. say it all the time 
uh, because again, I'm dealing with my audience. I know my audience is familiar with that term, so I use it, but mm -hmm. I don't really like it because it implies a level of essentialism that I think is part of the problem. But that's yeah. a, you know, uh, a, a different conversation for a different time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we're trying to do to show people that, you know, there are, you know, uh, black people have all kinds of different ideas and viewpoints and things like that. We don't want the same things. We don't share the same ideas, the same emotions, the same reactions uh, to certain things. What is a microaggression of that guy may not be to the other guy, even though they're both black, right? Mm -hmm. We just had an article uh, that came out uh, recently about people touching hair and things like that. And, you know, um, some people, most people think that's a violation of somebody's privacy and, and things like that. And other people think it's cool. Mm -hmm. you know and uh and, and that's a very different thing but the point is and i mean i i think it's not cool yeah. you know i i had dreadlocks for the better part of two decades strangers coming up and petting you not mm -hmm. cool yeah you know? <laughs> uh, but but anyway yeah um but even even there you know uh there's viewpoint diversity among the editors yeah of free black thought you know mm -hmm. um so we, we we put that out there and uh and, and that's that but uh, that's really the main point of it. The one of the, uh, you know, a sub point, I guess, uh, is that we're trying to fight this idea that all black people are pitiable, you know, that we're, we're these downtrodden victims, right, uh, that that need your help or need things to change egregiously, you need to turn math into a cultural studies course. For, for the black people, right? We're That's trying racist. to fight that. Yeah, right. We're trying to fight that too, right? Yeah. Uh, saying that, no, no, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do that for me. Well, for you them. Don't, you don't yeah. need a savior of any color, right? right? Yeah. And, right. and and again, I I read everything that you guys put out because it's diverse, because you, you uh -huh. don't have one. That's what struck me most about it. And, and what I, I appreciate about it is not a person of the black community is is if, if to use the term you know, is i i see there is that diversity of thought and that's what is the important part and it that it has educated me about just that simple fact on a numerous amount of levels and i said just everything that comes out of free black thought everyone should read i i really do uh, i i really yeah. do think that so All right. um well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. I just want to say this to everybody. Read everything Dr. Smith writes. Pick up his book. It's a critique of anti-racism, rhetoric, and composition. It's worth every penny. And it opens up your, your eyes to so many different ways of communicating and, and how to decipher a lot of what's happening right now. And, you know, it can, it can get heady, but it's worth every worth every page and so thank um, you may, may i uh, may i say something yes yes uh, yes please um uh shameless plug but still relevant yes um, i have a second uh book out that basically expands on chapter two of that book okay you know um the one that talks about rhetoric and empowerment and things like that so i expand that into its own uh full book talking about interpersonal empowerment um, you know, interactional and uh, behavioral empowerment and how that um, not only empowers people in good ways, but can be a nice 
replacement for the DEI stuff going on right now, the trainings, the pedagogy, uh, mm -hmm. things like that. So uh, what's the name of the book? The Lure of Disempowerment. Reclaiming um, Agency in the Age of CRT. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be going to buy that and everyone else should too. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Smith, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and everybody follow Dr. Smith. Oh, we're, uh, I just want to plug your, your Twitter handle because that's where we met. It's uh, at yeah. Redders. Uh, what is it? I I can't think of it. At uh, Redders of York. So Redders underscore of underscore York. Yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, that's me. He's not a big tweeter all the time, but when you do, boy, you lay it down and I really appreciate <laughs> it. So, all right. Thanks, Dr. Smith. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you.